Welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Emma Wathen. And I'm Kelsey Henry. And it is our pleasure today to be in conversation with Professor Doug Crandall. Doug has an appointment as public service faculty at the Institute on Human Development and Disability at the University of Georgia, where he directs the Advancing Employment Center. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion. To get started, let's talk about your career path as a disability advocate. So on top of writing scholarship about disability and economic justice, you have also worked in employment and disability supports for several decades. How did you first get started in this field? Oh, that's an easy one, but it's a great one. I love uh, I love labor. I love employment. I uh, come from a union family, farming family, and I have a sis. I have an older sister with disabilities, and uh, we always expected her to work, and quite a worker she is. And so um, kind of, you know, as a, you know, a brother, a sibling who loves her very much, um, I'm sure that had something to do with the career path. But I, my undergraduate was in industrial organizational psychology. And of course, again, coming from a, a labor family, I knew I wanted to do something in that arena. And uh, when I figured out that there was an intersection of disability and labor, I was really thrilled by that. And really, that's the only thing I've done for 33 years this fall um, is work in disability employment. Wow, it's so it's so fascinating the ways that like so many different roads brought you to the book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Your personal familial background, you were always kind of immersed in questions and and also the actual like lived embodied reality of thinking about labor practices, exploitative labor practices and disability. So it's this wedding of the personal and the political and the professional. Um, I can see all those strands coming together in, in really powerful ways, especially in the book. So Doug is here to talk with us about his most recent book published in 2022, and it's called 22 Cents an Hour, Disability Rights and the Fight to End Subminimum Wages. So this is another context question. As an author, you've had a very varied career. You've tackled a variety of genres from memoirs, romance novels, satirical fiction, true crime. You've really covered such a broad spectrum. And now you're writing disability studies nonfiction. And it's clear to me how your personal and professional life led you here. But I'd love to hear a little bit more kind of in the context of other writing projects and your identity Mm -hmm. as a writer. What prompted you to start this project? And how is it similar to or different from your previous work? Well, it's such an astute question. I appreciate the interest. I guess I will just say it for any budding authors out there, probably following the path of writing in several genres is not the advice I would give anyone. Uh, Publishing is uh, just about as strange a business as uh, college and university life. But um, yeah, I, you know, I did both of these things separately for a long time, right? I never let the writing interfere with my work. Loved them both. Uh, couldn't do, you know, without either one of them. 
You know, I've when I've done book tour, Chicago Review Press uh, published my first two books, which were memoirs uh, that include a lot of disability, substance abuse, mental health stuff, and my own family and in and in labor. Um, but you know, I had to take time off to do the book tour. Uh, Chicago Review Press got us a uh, an RV, and we got to go from Atlanta uh, to Chicago with about fifteen stops in between back in, way, way back, almost 20 years ago. But I kept them separate. And I write a lot for something called The Sun Magazine. It's celebrating its 50th year, a uh, very well-respected literary journal. And it's all essays. And I've written about my family. Again, all the stuff we've talked about and published in The Sun Magazine. And, and about six years ago, I started thinking about a guy named Riley. He's portrayed in the opening part of the book. And I wrote this essay about Riley, who was someone who was in an institution and had been forced to, to be there and no, no good health care, no good community supports. And I got to know him and he was whisked off. And the Sun Magazine published that. And it dawned on me that I had not written in my own field, right? And so I started collecting some notes around this. And we've, we hear this all the time, right? That any book that we're, you know, compelled to read, not to put down, in other words, has to have at its core a mystery. Whether that's nonfiction, romance, true crime, serious nonfiction, it has to have a mystery. And the mystery to me was shamefully, by that time, I guess I would have celebrated 27, 28 years in the field. I could not answer the question about why subminimum wages was still public policy in the United States for workers with disabilities. And so that carried me into trying to figure out that mystery. And I did. And it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great segue to the next question I was going to ask you, uh, which is in the preface to your book. We're introduced to a man named Riley, who you just mentioned, who you met while working as a job coach for people with disabilities in the 1990s. And as you were talking about how every book has to start with a mystery, I also gravitated toward that story again, because there's a mystery with that story as well. We don't know what ended up happening to Riley, despite yeah. your best efforts. So I was wondering, why did you decide to open your book with Riley's story out of all the people that you've met while working in the field? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Emma. Uh, he was just a, you know, I was young. Uh, he was young. I thought I could um, change the world. I still do. still believe it. I'm just tired. <laughs> and I, I've always thought about him. And as I said, the impulse to write about my own field, I guess I was, you know, shuttling that off to the side. And I just, I wanted to know what happened to, to Riley. I wanted to know why it happened. In terms of the narrative structure of the book, of course, as we all know, there are editors and copy editors and substantive editors and line editors. And uh, when I turned the manuscript into Cornell and University Press, we just kind of all felt that there wasn't a zing in the beginning, something much more personal. And I just thought, why have I not thought about using that essay from The Sun and editing it so that it sets the tone for the book? And so I was really pleased by that. It felt like a way to 
honor Riley, to honor folks who in the book do get out. They do get a chance to have a life. Riley and literally millions of others over the last 60, 70 years in the United States haven't had that opportunity. So I felt it was really fitting to give uh, Riley's life the opening shot in the narrative. Yeah. Absolutely. Books about complex economic systems can sometimes feel so disconnected from the people who are affected by these systems. But this book felt very intimate because of your focus on people like Riley and people like Alfred Busby and Sparkle Green. Another person who appears in this book is your father, who worked at a ceiling tile factory and was involved in its labor union. I'm wondering, to what extent did your background as someone who had grown up in a union family and someone who had worked as a job coach for people with disabilities influence you as you were writing this piece of scholarship? You know, I loved I loved this question because no one's asked me that question, you know. Um, I, I just uh, finished a, an essay for The Sun magazine called His Body of Work. My, my father passed, and uh, it's been almost now nine years. And I wanted to put a cap on his body of work. And I don't know about you all, but when you come up with a great title, you're like, oh, that captures so much. It's my body of work. It's his body of work. It's his physical body. And so my my father, early on, he's born into poverty too. He's born in 1939 on a Valentine's night on a horse and sleigh in Vigo County, Indiana. They could not get my grandmother to the hospital. And he contracted polio when he was about 10. And um, luckily, most of the intense effects of, of the disease were located in his left leg. And, and uh, he was able to still had a gait problem, but not a large one. And he was a, you know healthy in so many other ways. But that kind of upbringing, you know, when you are on the cusp of not having enough food, when you're on the cusp of getting evicted, and there's disability and substance abuse and mental health. By the way, it's in every family. <laughs> We've convinced ourselves somehow it isn't. Every single family has substance abuse, mental health, disability somewhere, right? And I guess that that labor part, and then I worked with my father in the ceiling tile factory during the summers. I was the first one to go to college in my family. And so one of the interesting things, which I don't touch on in the book, but since you asked the question is, you know, labor unions used to play a large role for folks with learning disabilities and intellectual disabilities. People would have full-time jobs. There were many workers within the local 563 uh, union, paper workers union in Indiana that had disabilities. And so it really does get to kind of the heart of this story, as I said, disability and labor intersect so perfectly with this story um, and the stories of the folks that that are in the book, that it's also a way to kind of, you know, pay tribute to, to labor unions. It's one of my things I do every Labor Day is I spend time with uh, union folks, some I know, some I don't know, uh, just trying to do my part. So I guess that's the answer in a nutshell. It was really part of my upbringing, just just like it was getting to know, you know, what it was like to have a, a loved one with a disability and my sister, right? 
One of the things that I loved about your book is that you were able to balance these personal and really highly personable stories about individual people, your father, Sparkle Green, Riley, alongside a really comprehensive and beautifully told policy level history of the relationship between disability and labor in labor law. So for all the historians out there, I'd love for us to dig a little bit more into um, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. So you trace the practice of paying workers with disabilities less than the federal minimum wage back to what is pretty ironically called the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which has an exception that you reference uh, repeatedly throughout the book known as 14C that legalizes sub-minimum wages for workers with disabilities. Can you say a little bit more about what the original idea was behind that legislation? Sure. It's, it is important history because we're still living with it, unbelievably. You know, it, it's difficult to find in public life a public policy that hasn't at least been amended, changed, updated. We found it. The Section 14C of, as you say, the ironically named Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 authorized the ability to pay subminimum wages. And it was designed really for people, and, and let's be honest, it's 1938, so we're talking white males. So we're not talking people, we're talking white males returning from wars and being hurt on farms and factory floors. And they wanted to be able to put something in the policy. Remember, this is 1938. We're not even celebrating 100 years yet of having 40-hour work weeks, overtime, the right to unionize, OSHA, protections, right? And so it was a minor part of the Fair Labor Standards Act. It wasn't a huge one. And so as, as we move from 1938, it is mostly businesses, real businesses, who get these 14C certificates so they could bring somebody maybe who's lost an arm in combat, had a, you know, a traumatic brain injury in a factory or on a farm, could bring those folks back in the fold, pay them. Remember this, the entire subminimum wage stuff is based on physical labor. It's physical. It, it's hands, feet, right? It's, it, you're moving your body. That's what it's about. So the productivity piece made sense in a manufacturing farming economy. But even based on that, we haven't updated it uh, for 85 years. So that was kind of the intent. And it didn't start getting really wrapped into disability services until the early 1960s. So let's talk about the 1960s then. Uh, As you point out in the book, there's this widely held belief that advocates, politicians, and workers with disabilities only began to criticize subminimum wages in the last decade or so. But your book reveals that even in its early years, such as the 1960s, there were several points where 14C publicly came under attack. For example, there was Burton Blatt's expose of institutions in 1967. There was Senator Wayne Morse's proposal to revise 14C in 1965. Why do you think that these early advocacy efforts went under the radar? Yeah, it's also, I know I've used this word before, but also an astute observation because 
there is a really clear link to why these two these two pieces you men- mentioned, Morris and Blatt, are really, really strong and why they didn't go anywhere kind of ends up in the narrative thread uh, through the 70s and 80s. Burton Blatt was a fascinating person. Uh, Dr. Blatt um, was the chair of special education and rehabilitation at Syracuse University, could have stayed behind that desk, the podium, writing white papers and research papers. Dr. Blatt was really what we would call an empath today. He was a very led by his Jewish faith. He was acutely aware that millions of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities were first sent to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. He knew all that history very deeply and very personally. And so when he saw these institutions, and I'll just say real quick, because it's a fascinating part of the story, he wrote a book called Christmas and Purgatory. And he and a and a photographer named Fred Kaplan sneak in to four institutions on the Eastern seaboard to covertly take photos. And so Christmas and Purgatory is really a photo essay. And it is impossible to look at those 80 or 90 photos and not have the hair on your neck stand up and, and choke up. It, it is horrendous. What Blatt was trying to do, though, was say, look how we're treating Americans with disabilities who have not committed any crime. The institutions at that time were worse than our prisons, you know, pretty, and the prisons were pretty bad, <laughs> pretty bad. So his was really focused on just the kind of ways that we approach folks with intellectual developmental disabilities. At that time, still the, the term mental retardation was still used. But the reason his didn't do much is because most of it was focused on what we would consider residential or where people live. And so while it was very powerful and the the publishing story of Christmas and Purgatory is so interesting, it got curtailed on the subminimum wage side because there weren't yet as many abuses on the subminimum wage side. He was really trying to focus on these institutional settings. Now, Morse's proposal um, started to show us, I think, in the congressional record, how powerful, even without paid lobbyists, uh, some of these organizations and systems are in the United States. And so as we get into middle 60s, early 70s, a lot of these players in what I call the disability industrial complex were starting to learn how to lobby and organize around trade groups, right? And really use political power to do one thing, to keep anything from changing. And they've been successful in that, right? Would you mind defining that term for us, the disability industrial complex? Is it one that you came up with or is it? No, no. I'm so glad you asked that too. It's Kathy Snow. Kathy Snow is alive and well, a wonderful thought leader in, in what I have started calling disrupting the disability industrial complex. Uh, she's a, She coined the phrase, really started more than a decade ago saying, we don't know where any of this money goes just like the military industrial complex. We don't know what the outcomes are, uh, what's being done in our name in these hundreds of billions of dollars a year that are spent 
in the disability industrial complex. So you can see this all over American culture and politics and society where we have allowed capitalism um, and lobbying to really guide even something as personable and as significant as living your life with a disability. And so that was one of the bigger shockers for me. I didn't know the extent and should have. As a disability advocate and as a brother to a sister and working in this field, I should have known that. It was a big surprise to me how much money is spent in lobbying. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can linger a little bit longer on the relationship between institutions, institutionalization, and then the movement to deinstitutionalize folks with disabilities, how that kind of historical narrative arc from institutions to deinstitutionalization plays into the story that you're telling about labor exploitation and disability. So I think a good place to start would be uh, the 1999 Supreme Court case Olmstead versus LC, which is sometimes referred to as the Brown versus Board for Disability Rights. And in this case, the court ruled that people with disabilities, like the plaintiffs Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson, had a qualified right to receive state-funded supports and services in their own communities rather than in institutions. So how did deinstitutionalization relate to the fight to end subminimum wages then? Yeah, it is, again, a great question. The, the thing to remember about the history of disability and, and formalized services in the United States is for the most part around the Civil War time to the first, you know, 1910, 1920, we really viewed, um, we really viewed disability as something that either was viewed through a religious kind of viewpoint, right? I, I just, by the way, I just met a family about a month ago who casually said to me, a young family, that the reason they have a daughter with Down syndrome is because they had sex before they were married. And so our our perception of disability has been linked to to poverty. We really treated it like like poverty. There used to be some laws called the ugly laws um, that I don't touch on in the book. You've probably probably read about some of this where you could be fined for having a disability, uh, disfigurement, anything like that. So we have been really strange, no surprise, as Americans and how we've treated it. So once you move past this kind of religiosity around disability and you kind of get us forming policies around poverty, then people are starting to say, well, they need to, they need to go someplace. And you get these workhouses and poor houses that then kind of get, you know, transitioned into institutions. And once we, you know, start formalizing, you know, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, we have some funding streams to keep these kind of large institutions open. We lost Lois Curtis last fall. Lois and Elaine uh, were two fascinating women who challenged uh, Georgia and our nation's highest court to say that they'd been in institutions too long, both of them. Anyone who's been in an institution has had to work to be there. There's a case, I don't know if you remember it from the book, but in 1974 in Indiana, um, it's a huge class action lawsuit. Leo Sonnenberg in an institution and another guy along with their lawyers, a file 
this complaint that they haven't been being paid. Now, remember, as a culture, we say, there's something wrong with you, Doug. You must go to the institution. But once all these folks are at the institution, they're working 40-hour-week jobs. Why? Because it takes a lot of resources to keep an institution of 1,000 acres and 4,000 people in it moving. And people were cutting hair, doing landscaping, working on vehicles. So this lawsuit makes it in 1974 on, on the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? But there was another piece, the 13th Amendment. They successfully argued that folks were being held in captivity as indentured servants, and the prohibition against indentured servitude and slavery was evoked, and they won but it was overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. Now, the important thing to know is these institutions are often um, underwritten, right, by huge state budgets. And so they're not really excited about dismantling those. One of the misnomers in the disability industrial complex is somehow we have totally deinstitutionalized, but we just called them different things. Um, Hospitals will often have units that are Medicaid uh, reimbursed for folks who are homeless and picked up, or many folks end up in our jails and prisons with disabilities and mental, uh, mental illnesses. And so this institutionalization part, we have obviously reduced it, and that's a good thing, and conditions are better. But I point out in the book, particularly if you're a person in the United States with an intellectual or developmental disability, and you must go to a sheltered workshop or a day program, forced to do that. And particularly if that same organization is providing your housing, you're six to seven times more likely to be physically or sexually abused in those settings by paid staff members than someone with that exact same diagnosis label who's not inside the disability industrial complex. So subminimum wages is really a symptom of our, our, our disability policy, because we can see through that lens that it's harmful. Many of the practices that we're underwriting are harmful. Thank you for mapping out that process for us. So as you just said, and as you say in the book, when you're talking about the institutionalization in the United States, many times institutions are just renamed as 24-hour residential settings or intermediate care facilities. Would you say that a similar thing is going on with subminimum wages, uh, such as the the spaces where workers with disabilities are getting paid, being referred to as sheltered workshops, and then work activity centers, then enclaves? Or are there distinctions between these models with some changes over time? Yeah, it, it's also a great question. The, the, any type of industrial complex like, like this one or military, pharmaceutical, fossil fuel. You know, the goal with language is is to make sure we can keep people from looking too closely, right? So there's a switch. I've seen the affirmative business has been something someone's called a sheltered workshop. I mean, it, it just continues to evolve that way. Enclave, by the way, the real definition of enclave that the disability industrial complex uh, brought up upon and inside the system was really to mean eight or nine folks with disabilities doing some mobile work crew stuff, right? Landscaping, cleaning. But Enclave, when you look it up, the definition is 
an outcampment in a hostile territory. It's a war term, right? So the, the language changes to keep us from looking too closely um, to say, well, we don't have institutions anymore. We have 24-7 residential sites, right? Um, and so we've done this in employment quite a bit too, in the federal language, and I should say there is a, a bill that's just been sitting in the House uh, in Congress that, that hasn't had any new sponsors since last fall, but it, it's the bill that federally would ban subminimum wages. Right now, uh, only about a third of the states have banned or are planning on phasing out subminimum wages. So the way that they kind of get around these things is renaming stuff. And, and that bill is called transformation to competitive integrated employment. Because some of these sheltered workshops have said, we don't want any more trouble. We don't want anybody messing with us. So we're just going to pay people minimum wage. Well, if that was the case, why haven't you been doing that? Second, that doesn't give me any more choice. You're still holding me captive in this setting that I may not want to be in. And we call those settings segregated and congregated because we fooled ourselves to somehow to believe that if you're an American with a disability, particularly an intellectual developmental disability, you're just like the next person with an intellectual developmental disability. We're all specific human beings. Label has nothing to do with it. So the, the language, I think, is something also that um, I started paying attention a lot to in this book because I realized how many acronyms and really ignorant language I use from being inside this disability industrial complex for three decades. And I really had to kind of peer all that away so that it could be accessed by a general readership. I want to ask another question about that. Working in disability services, like human services with a focus on disability and labor, can you say more about other instances in which you had to sort of unlearn the, the received assumptions that you learned from being within that world about the capacities and the limitations of folks with disabilities? Yeah, I think, I think I came to this a little differently, mostly because my folks and, and my family had seen my sister labeled and diagnosed and sold short. And we talk a lot about low expectations in the book. And, and the system is just you know rife with that. So I think the bigger challenge for me was trying to figure out, again, how can I make this so that anyone can understand it. Most Americans, when you hear goodwill or you pass a human service agency that might have two figures kind of holding hands and that's their logo and there's a beautiful mission statement about inclusion and uh, living up to our best independence, everyone goes, oh good, they're helping folks. Most Americans don't know that that's where six to seven times of the abuse is happening. They don't know that subminimum wages is exploitive. They don't know that we haven't changed some of our disability policies significantly in decades. So that part for me was trying to learn how I could communicate it. So I did have to do some gut checking to stakeholders and people I needed at the table. I'll give you a very quick example. Here in Georgia, it's still legal. 
to pay subminimum wages. And that's, uh, you might imagine how painful that is for me. <laughs> Last legislative session, we came close. But who's been carrying a lot of that water is the uh, YWCA here in Georgia has a women's policy institute. And this this group of just dedicated women have taken this cause on in Georgia, subminimum wages. And they are doing so much better at getting other people to the table than somebody like me who's a disability advocate because they can see through it, cut through it, and have a real strong stance. So I think that's the path forward, both federally and then in states where it's still legal, is getting people who care about this, not just from inside the disability industrial complex, because while there are people who care about it and have worked for decades to dismantle it, they haven't done it. We can't get it done without people who are passionate and see this really for what it is. It's exploitation, it's bad public policy, and lobbying and these powerful groups are really kind of standing it up so that it doesn't go away. It seems like you're getting at the necessity of coalitional politics. Yeah. yeah. Um, like when you think about actually abolishing some minimum wages, um, the necessity. I remember in the preface to your book, you talk about Occupy Wall Street being yeah. like a galvanizing sort of flashpoint moment when the relationship between disability and labor exploitation, which can sometimes be seen as too niche in its emphasis on disabled people, there was a way for those issues um, and those activists to speak to and connect deeply with a grassroots political movement that had a lot of people and presence behind it. And that, that was a moment in which coalition of connecting disability and labor exploitation to larger dialogues about exploitative labor practices was really important. So yeah, I'm just going to put a pin in that and I'm excited to, to circle back around to that. I'm wondering if you can demystify something for me. One of the most egregious examples in your book is Henry's Turkey Farm where men with intellectual disabilities were trafficked to and from a Texas institution to an Iowa meat processing plant where they were uh, inseminating, killing, and processing turkeys for sub-minimum wages. And the system operated for more than three decades, which is mind, mind-boggling to me. And I'm curious about why you think this abuse got overlooked by the government um, and by the community for as long as it did, and what happened once it did catch the public's eye? Yeah, it's a complex, complicated question. Henry's Turkey Service is um, arguably uh, the chapter in, in the book is three times as long as the other chapters. I'm not the first one to write about it. There's a great New York Times documentary, short one, a great book, Boys in the Bunkhouse. But Henry's Turkey Service, I think the thing that surprised me the most was that there's this wonderful reporter at the Des Moines Register, and she, in 1979, goes in Adelissa, Iowa, which is still only 300 people, by the way. She goes, you know what? I, I hear all these wonderful things. You'll know from the book that the owners called them their boys and just a lot of demeaning language and 
of course, we find out so much more people dying, being physically and sexually abused, people running away. Some of the men ran away. They were tracked down and then chained to their bed. She writes the, this two-day expose on the front pages, the Des Moines Register in 1979, and we don't close it down until 2009. The only way I can answer the question around why didn't that happen right at the time, by the way, it's not a mediocre milk toast two-day expose. It's very critical. Then we have the, the Wall Street Journal guys who are really crime investigators. They go in 80 and 81 to sheltered workshops for the blind in New Jersey and have also scathing front page stories. I, I think it's an American tendency to, to lie to ourselves quite a bit. And I don't think that disability gets left out of that. I think we want to believe that we're a nation that loves people with disabilities. It's just, if you look at our policy, it actually looks like we hate people with disabilities. And so I think it, 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 it doesn't get solved because there's a lack of oversight on subminimum wages in the congressional record. There are so many instances of testimony of saying at USDOL, the subunit of government is called wage and hour division, the wage and hour division. And they've always been responsible for issuing the 14C certificates, of monitoring that. And sometimes, some years went by, they didn't monitor any of them. They didn't check on any of them. And when they did check on them, they really didn't do much. And while some of that has changed unbelievably in 2023, obviously more oversight's not the answer. It's, it's banning it. So I think one of the enduring heartaches of this story is that every week you can see a horrific story, and that means there are 15, 20, 100 more that we don't hear about of abuse of folks, Americans with disabilities in the United States. So I think it's part of that othering that we do. I think it's, to be honest, some apathy on our part. We think, again, well, there are places that have those wonderful signs. I know somebody's son or daughter who goes to that program. Let me make this clear. We call those community rehabilitation providers, CRPs. There are literally thousands across the country, and so many of them do wonderful work. It's also where most folks with disabilities are being harmed the most. So it, it's, it, it's, a, it's an issue around policy that I think also intersects with kind of our personal, cultural, familial kind of views of disability. And that's a tough thing to legislate, but certainly oversight isn't. And for, for my money, it should be switched off right now with an executive order. Doesn't need to be a bill. We should just ban it and be done with it so that we can move on and make much better policy. For me, one of the most striking facts about the situation at Henry's Turkey Farm is that the owners had previously relied on labor from the exploitative yeah. Bracero program yeah. in which Mexican farm workers would be hired to work in the U.S. under short-term contracts. And the owners only began to turn to using workers from the Abilene State School after the Bracero program began to be phased out, in essence, replacing one vulnerable workforce with another. What did you make of that parallel? Uh, shamefully, I was not aware of the Bracero program. Um, 
just one more thing we're not taught in history that should be in every, every labor history course. Um, it didn't surprise me, I guess, given how much in our country we just look the other way when there's money being made. I mean, make no mistake, the, the folks who owned Henry's Turkey Service uh, and other uh, companies that have relied on that very, very, very cheap labor know exactly what they're doing. They know that that's the way that they can make this kind of profit. I really thought with Henry's Turkey Service and, and people in my kind of community of disability advocates trying to overturn this awful policy saw 2009 as kind of a wake-up call for people outside of the disability industrial complex. I believed it would have been shut off right then. But understand this, that it's exposed in 2009. By 2011, there's something put out about Henry's Turkey Service from the National Disability Rights Network called Segregated and Exploited. And it gets sent around everywhere. And then in 2011, we have a bill that gets introduced in Congress called the Fair Wages for Workers with Disabilities Act. And some of the biggest names in human services, their trade groups, Goodwill, others, spent millions fighting to keep subminimum wages legal. We try again in 2014, and we passed something called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, fully imp implemented in 2016. And what does it still have in it? Subminimum wages. It doesn't ban them. It just says that if someone is going to refer a worker with a disability to one of these places, one of these sheltered workshops, they got to jump through some hoops. That tells us how strong financially and politically that lobby is for the disability industrial complex. My guess is the reason we haven't had any more co-sponsors on the bill in the House since I think last September maybe is because there's been some significant lobbying. It's just sitting there. So what, what can we do, right? I tell people all the time, find out who, you can go on the USDOL's website. One, one positive thing that has happened in the last decade is they put up where all the 14C certificates are. You can see if there's one in your community, how many are in your state, how many folks are on those 14C certificates, how many workers, and go and visit and ask the question, how do people leave here? How do they get a regular, real job in the community? Because that's the only way we're going to impact it locally. Nothing wrong with also advocating strongly to ban it in your state. But I think having firsthand experience is really important. And uh, you can see for yourself that it's an outdated, harmful, bad public policy. And the only thing that's propping it up is money and lobbying. Let's continue on this thread about wake-up calls that happened in the early 2010s. So the title of your book, 22 cents an hour, refers to the wage that Goodwill paid their workers with disabilities. It became somewhat of a slogan when the National Federation of the Blind began its boycott of Goodwill in 2012. How did this boycott compare to earlier efforts to abolish subminimum wages for workers with disabilities? Yeah. 
NFB, if you don't know anything about the National Federation of the Blind, it is a absolutely impeccable organization, always led by folks who are blind. Uh, really, they were the first ones embracing lived experience inside the disability industrial complex. Uh, you know, nothing about us without us. And so I admire the, the leadership there. The history is absolutely fascinating. And I, I couldn't help but to put some of that in the book because it's so inspiring. What they did, though, by doing the freedom of information request for Goodwill, they did that on purpose, right? I mean, you could have made a freedom of information request to a very small sheltered workshop, say, in West Virginia, found out probably the same thing. But most Americans know what Goodwill is. And they needed that to pin it to because the problem has been, as we talked about earlier, the folks who have been trying to solve this issue, like myself and others, are part of the system. And so it needed people outside to have fresh eyes and to understand that it's truly a labor and civil rights issue. It's not a disability issue entirely. So that changed. Now, what the, the boycotts did, which arguably were small, they weren't very big, you know, handful here and there of stores and, you know, signs and all that. But what it prompted was a piece by Harry Smith on Rock Center, which used to be a evening news report for NBC, Ryan Williams, Harry Smith. And they did a, a, a whole segment. It's only about four or five minutes, but it's called The Wage Wars. And they profiled a couple, a blind couple from Montana who were also in the book. And I had a great opportunity to interview and get to know a little bit. And that kind of brought it to the general public. I think where the disability field missed the opportunity, though, was probably with Henry's Turkey Service. Because while there's a, like I said, a heart-wrenching book, I certainly spend a lot of time on it. You can Google it and find out so, so many stories. I think it was a, a misstep not to have used that to, to have overturned subminimum wages. That was the only thing that we needed really to do that. So I, I guess in, the, in hindsight, when you think about tactics, you know, NFB is powerful in that it's got uh, lots of local chapters, state chapters, while they have, I wouldn't say backed off of sub-minimum wages, I think they are wondering what can be the next step too if you've got a bill that's not being acted on. I, I will say one other thing. It's a little wonky, a little geeky, but uh, last fall, the feds did uh, release $167 million for states to apply to phase out sub-minimum wages. It's called, the acronym is terrible. It's called SWITSI, Subminimum Wage to Competitive Integrated Employment. I have still concerns about that. I'm working on some of those projects, full transparency. Very difficult when you still have it legal nationally. It, it, it violates Olmstead. It violates the ADA. It violates IDEA. It violates just basic civil rights of citizens, and yet we're still trying to change it without getting rid of it. And that's a concern for me. 
I'm curious about some of the like underlying assumptions and the internal logic of like disability labor policy that you touch on in the book. You use this language of cycles, uh, cycles of low expectations. And that's a theme that comes up repeatedly, the cycle of employers and policymakers having really low expectations of people with disabilities, having a tendency to assess them on skills that they're bad at and not allowing them to demonstrate their individuality to show the skills that they're good at. You also show us some examples of people who had formerly worked in sheltered workshops and found opportunities to really thrive once they found employment in their communities that better suited their actual interests and talents. So I think what this is touching on a little bit, and you spoke to this earlier, a tendency to not see people with disabilities as individuals, yeah, yeah. Uh, to lump them into a category that's defined by incapacity instead of individual personalities and abilities. So I'm wondering what can human service agencies learn from some of the counterexamples that you gave in the book? Yeah, you know, it's kind of the essence of this story. The, the truth is, and this is harsh, and I've wrestled with this, <laughs> believe me, not only have I been sued because of the book, I have often emails that are not very nice, but the truth is it's all broken. Our views of disability, like so many other social issues, it's systemic. It's based on bad science. It's based on othering. But here is the harsh reality. I used to believe deeply that if I showed the, the opposite, right, what could be true and what is true, that that would change hearts and minds. It won't. The business models are set up for these provider organizations in the United States to keep people in their buildings, to keep billing minds and bodies. If someone is fixed, in quotations, is rehabilitated, gets new skills, I can no longer bill off of that mind or body. It behooves then the disability industrial complex to have those low expectations, to make sure that there's always, and this is a gross term, but it's absolutely true. There's always a product to bill off of, and it happens to be human beings. And I'll give you an example. It, it's a small statistic in the book, but the numbers of folks on subminimum wages have, have dropped every year. We used to have we think about 1.7 million people on subminimum wages. We're down to about, depending on the data set you look at, 100 to 150,000 people. Those folks didn't just go to work. We didn't convince these organizations to put people to work in real jobs. They moved them into another program. They moved them out of a sheltered workshop into a day program to do what? To keep billing. These organizations can bill Medicaid, they can bill state dollars, they can bill vocational rehabilitation dollars. Some of these organizations have big contracts with county commissioners to fund their services. So the kind of hate mail I get sometimes is, how dare you? We don't have enough money in the disability system as it is. 
That's true. We don't. But the money we do have, hundreds of billions, are going to CEOs who are making $250,000, $400,000, $750,000 a year. And so do we need more money? Not the provider agencies. No, not the disability industrial complex. One of the things that's really promising is a set of advocates who are really talking about self-direction with funding, personalized budgets. Right now, if you have a Medicaid waiver and you're in a sheltered workshop, that provider gets all that funding. We want it so that you can self-direct. A family, a person with a disability can choose their services and purchase that where they want to. That's the real promising part. But the good stories, what's possible, they don't care because they see that as a fringe piece and all they got to do is keep it from changing. And that's where you get the lobbying. I spend a little time in the book talking about this kind of inspiration, disability porn stuff that, you know, you roll somebody out and they go, where is Doug going to go if he doesn't have this sheltered workshop? Yes, he only makes 22 cents an hour, but it's not about the money. It's about his purpose, feeling good about himself. It's all a crock. It's all just inspirational junk to deflect people from really looking at the truth. The truth is you're an organization receiving federal and state dollars and you must get outcomes. You can't spend decades keeping people in a building and billing off of them. What do you think the path toward the abolition of sub-minimum wages might look like? Are there measures that you would recommend to prevent the disability industrial complex from continuing to flow and reinvent itself the way it has for the past century? Yeah, it is such a good question. While we've talked about it a little, I, I, I think there's a misnomer, right? That people go, well, Doug, you're going to get what you want. That bill is going to be passed at some point. There'll be more states that phase it out. And I say, great. We've known for 70 years, it's terrible, harmful practice. Took us seven decades to help. It's it's just a symptom of a disability industrial complex that is run amok. And it's like so many parts of our American lives. You've got to get the money out of it. You've got to get the lobbying out of these issues so that real disability policy can be made. You know, I often tell people in the UK in 2002, they came up with what is essentially health and human services there, um, the health service that, and I'm paraphrasing, but that every person with intellectual and developmental disability in the UK would have a regular job, live in a regular house on a regular street in a regular community. That's disrupting the system. I I spend a little time on Medicaid law, which snoozes people pretty quickly. But even in Medicaid, these these organizations have lobbied to keep any change from happening. The lobbyists, we, we often forget, they're really not lobbying for changes, right? They're lobbying to protect turf and money. And so that's really what, what it's about. And I think most Americans know that pharmaceutical companies and energy companies have lobbyists. I think it's really a shock. It was to me and I think to most folks. So that's a starting point. The other point is, yes, we need to ban it federally. And then we need to start saying to these organizations, how long does it take you to rehabilitate someone? Why is someone 
still in this program a decade later. You are, you're using federal and state dollars. Show us your evidence-based interventions. We want to see what you're doing to get the outcome. Because these dollars don't say, be nice to people with disabilities, take care of them, babysit. It doesn't say any of that. It says two large things, rehabilitate, help us get the skills back that we've lost, or another one, habilitate, which means gain new skills that I didn't have. That's it. If you're in a program for 20 years and you're still in that program, I argue that that's malpractice. So my final question for you is, what's next for you? Is there anything that you're working on right now that you're able to share with us? Or is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet? Well, I just, I'm thankful for your interest. So, so thank you. Uh, it's an important topic. Um, for me, you know, I run the Advancing Employment Training and TA Center. I'm always, since you all know how it is in the university setting, chasing grant and foundation dollars and trying to keep things uh, going. Um, for Georgia, you know, I've got to get it banned. I've got to get it overturned here. Uh, I can't stand living here and knowing it's still law. There are only about 300 workers with disabilities in Georgia uh, on subminimum wages compared to, say, a California that's seven or 8,000. So that's a, that's a policy issue. In terms of the writing, I'm slated to do a, a book on how Americans with disabilities are afforded housing in the United States and haven't started on that yet. So we'll need to dive into that. I guess the only other thing I would just say is to reiterate something. And, and that, that is all of this is being done with our tax dollars and we need to care enough. Uh, and there's a lot to attend to in American social life. That's for sure. But we need to care enough because there are folks who are not part of our economic fabric of our communities. And that's a disjustice to, to us and certainly to the person. And I don't want to see, and we will, I guarantee you, if we don't do something, we'll see another Henry's Turkey service. We'll see more abuse and lack of oversight if we don't do anything. So urgency, I guess, is probably my next thing, making sure I keep it for myself and I'm helping others um, adopt that sense of urgency. Well, I eagerly await to see the results of both of your projects, both your, your activism and your next book on disability and housing. But until then, if people have not yet read Doug's book, 22 Cents an Hour, please go check it out and maybe do a little research on what the laws look like in the state that you're living in and see if there's anything you can do to help out. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Doug. You are so easy to talk with and you convey your thoughts so clearly and passionately. I know this is going to be such an exciting and accessible episode for our listeners. And I'm, I'm just so glad that we're going to be able to publish this. Well, you choked me up at the end. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Emma. It makes me feel wonderful that uh, you care about this. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for recording this with us, Doug, and best of luck on your projects. Thank you. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>